All right, if you would please turn to the book of Hebrews. Other than just talking about the text of uh, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 514, there's three things in particular I want to focus on. One of them is a repeat because um, it's already been discussed in Hebrews, but it's worth repeating again. And uh, that would be the second one. How was Jesus made perfect? All right, this goes back to themes earlier on in this particular book. Um, also, we're going to talk a little bit about how is Jesus like earthly priests and how is Jesus unlike earthly priests. Both must be there. All right, it's very important that we understand that he is, in fact, in some ways like earthly priests. If he is not, then, as we've discussed before, he cannot be our priest. Jesus must be God and man. But we'll get into that. And then finally, why is this here? All right. Um, why is this particular discussion where it is in the book? And I raise this not because, not only because it's very important whenever you're reading things to read things in context, but it's also important, I think, particularly here because people like using this passage for systematic theology, which is important. But when they do that, is easy when you read this passage to just think in terms of systematics. What does this contribute to our doctrine of who Jesus is? When, in, when you really need to think here, not only that, but also what is this contributing in the context of this book? Why is this here? As opposed to somewhere else or at all. So those are some things we're going to discuss today. Now as a bit of review, if we look towards the beginning of the book of Hebrews, let's start at verse 1, chapter 1. All right. The book starts off with a theme. And this is a theme it's not going to leave. At least not yet. And that is the greatness of the Son. God spoke through the prophets to his people and many times in many different ways. But something new and distinctly important has ha- had happened shortly before the writing of this particular book. All right. God, instead of speaking through prophets, he spoke through a son. So a distinctly different kind, and as it unfolds throughout the book, more important kind of revelation. And then you've got through chapter 1, you've got a lot of contrast between a son and an angel. Now angels frequently carried revelation, right? Angels would appear to prophets or would appear to Mary, for example, or appear to Joseph, all right? And they would bring, uh, they would bring revelation from God. They were, well, what is an angel? An angel is a messenger. That, that is what an angel is. He is a messenger from God. And so they brought revelation from God. Well, something greater than a messenger from God has come, all right? A son of God has come. And so the, the rest of chapter 1 is essentially a contrast between the son and the angels. To which of the angels did he say, let all, uh, or your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God never said that to an angel. That was said to the Son. Chapter 2. We've got a warning, and there's lots of warnings in this book. We've got a warning that, okay, well, if God sent messages through angels, and if you disagreed with that, or if you didn't obey that, that was bad. But if God sends messages through a Son, that's way worse. Right? Way worse than if God sent messages just through an angel. They're all important because God sent them. 
But you are more culpable when you do not listen to the Son than when you do not than when you do not listen to angels. All right? And then, starting in verse 5, it is not to angels, this is chapter 2, that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking, but then it talks about man, and then we discussed this one. This was, a, I thought, a fun activity, of figuring out when it talks here about this psalm, is it talking about Jesus or is it talking about man? And I really think it's talking about both. But it switches then into discussion about Jesus. And you get then a very strong theme, starting at this point, that Jesus was not just the Son of God, but also the Son of a man, meaning he was truly human. And you get this very strong theme that we talked about before, that if Jesus was not a man, all right, he could not have done what he did. He could not have played the role he did in God's salvation. And so when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and we talk about the doctrine of the Son, and we say the Son is truly God, but we also say that the Son is truly man. This passage in Hebrews, I think, is one of the best places you can, from a systematic theology standpoint, look at and go, it's crucial to the author of Hebrews' argument here, that Jesus be truly a man. If Jesus is not truly a man, this just doesn't work as an argument. So therefore, it must be true. All right? We will see that as well uh, today. So chapter 3. Right? Chapter 3, you've got then um, starting a contrast, a little bit of a contrast between Moses and and Jesus. And then you've got essentially a little mini-sermon. And we went through this recently. Uh, we went through this last uh, two weeks ago. Right? You get a mini-sermon. You've got there, starting in verse 7, you have a quotation from a psalm. And what psalm is that quoted from? Verse 7? What was that? Was it 95? Psalm 95. All right. And you know, if, you, if you go look, right, your, your Bibles will t- tend to, to have that there. Right. All right. Psalm, Psalm ninety-five, I believe, is what that came from. Right. Yes. And we spent a lot of time in that psalm. You might recall. All right. We spent a lot of time in that psalm, and then we saw that starting in verse seven, all the way through verse thirteen of chapter four. All right. So. A very long passage. He basically comes back and back to this psalm over and over and over again. And it talked about rest. All right. And the psalm basically shows that, remember the conquest of Canaan? All right. That was supposed to be rest. Joshua didn't give the people of God rest. That never happened. And you see that in the psalm because the psalmist is still talking about rest. So therefore, Joshua didn't give them rest. Or if you're reading the King James, as we discussed, Jesus didn't give them rest. In that case, well, true. All right, Joshua slash Jesus did not give them rest when they entered Canaan. They didn't have rest in the psalm. And then he basically, he has a sermon here about, you know what you should do? Just like the psalm says, you need to strive to enter that rest. In some senses, the rest is past in Christ. But in some senses, the rest is in the future. All right, we talked we talked last time. You must strive to enter that rest. You must make it to the end. You must persevere. And that was the point of that particular sermon. So in the point of you must strive through difficulties. You must strive until the end. It is in that context that we get to this passage that we're talking about today. Hebrews 4:14. 4, So, let's read there. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Notice there's the, repeat, the repetition of the thing. We must, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Going back to the other previous thing, Jesus had to be a man. Let us then, exhortation, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance. And what he goes into after this point, all right, is another warning. All right, and so th- our discussion today, which is really going to be primarily up till 10, so I should just change that to 510. We have this discussion, keep in mind, this is framed by two warnings. There was a warning before, and there will be a warning after or a description of what happens, essentially, or some things related to apostasy, there at the beginning of, of chapter 6. Right? So that is our context. So let's, let's keep that in mind. So our questions. Why is this here? Why is this sandwiched between two warnings? Why is this passage where it is? There must have been a reason for it, so we'll think about it. Mm-hmm. How is Jesus like earthly, pri- earthly priests? Because he must be. But how is he dislike them? Very important, very important in this book. And what does it mean to say that Jesus was made perfect? Peter, yes, sir. Could you explain what you mean when you say apostasy? Sure. Apostasy. So apostasy is when someone essentially joins the church, joins the people of God, and says, "I believe," and then they leave. Either because they 
deny the confession. Or they deny the way of the faith and leave through behavior. Right? So that's apostasy. You're an apostate if you join the faith and then you say, you know what, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't believe he rose from the dead. You are an apostate at that point. You're also an apostate if you say, I believe in Jesus and I will follow Jesus. And then you leave. And then you say, I'm not going to live by what Jesus said to do. That makes you an apostate. And so the warning, all right, we've got right before this is a warning against apostasy. All right. Finish. Right. That's what we went through last week. All right. Go back and read it. Finish. All right. Hold fast. And what we'll also see whenever we get to the next section, or if you just read ahead, you will see hold fast. All right. Dire things if you do not. Thank you for pointing that out, though. It's good to talk about those words. Okay, so these, these are essentially are some of our main questions. So let's talk about the text, and let's go a little bit more slowly, because we just read through. All right, so if we go back to chapter 4, verses 14, verse 14. Since then, we have a, a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. This ties us to what happened before. Now, another thing that's interesting here, right? Where where did Jesus go? According to this, what what did he do? He passed through the heavens. Turn to Ephesians chapter four, if you would. There's something you see a lot in uh, Jewish literature outside of the New Testament. We've discussed this before. It's been a while. We won't go through it all because that would be super distracting. However, you see this. Here's two places where you got the exact same wording. All right. There in Hebrews 4.14. You also have in Ephesians chapter 4. You've got, let's say we start reading at uh, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. All right. There's a general belief that you see a lot in Jewish thinking at the time, which you do see in the New Testament as well in, in some ways, and that, that ultimately heaven is multi-tiered. We think of heaven as a, as a unified thing. Hebrews didn't see that. Paul doesn't see that there. All right. Paul doesn't see that elsewhere too. All right. Heaven is actually a multi-tiered thing. Where did Jesus go? Well, in terms of if we think about higher being better, all right, where did Jesus go? To the highest parts of the heaven, where God himself reigns, and that's seen in Jewish literature. All right, God is not reigning, well, he, he reigns, but he is not abiding in the lower realms of the heaven. Angels and lesser beings are there, all right? Where did Jesus go? He's not an angel, all right? He went through the heavens, straight to, where does Jesus sit? 
at the right hand of God, right? And so when you see in Hebrews, and you can turn back there, this is a minor point, but interesting because you do see it here. Um, Jesus, right, is not a lower spiritual being, all right, than when he ascended, he went to the lower heavens. He, in fact, went through the heavens to sit at the right hand of God. Just one of those things you see in various places in the scripture. I thought I would point that out here. So since then, we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens, all right? Great high priest, Jesus, Son of God, once again, focusing on the Son aspect. Let us hold fast our confession. And this is just following up for, with the previous. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, answer this question for me. How is Jesus like earthly priests, and how is he dislike? Yeah. Before that, um, yeah. the pass through the heavens, could that also not mean not passed up, but came down from the heavens? Because the next verse is talking about his earthly life, and maybe... Uh, in in theory, I think so, but I think this is more exaltation language. I think that's the focus here. But yeah, no, I mean both are actually true, right? And that also fits quite well with the Ephesians thing. What does it mean that he descended? Well, he descended down all the way to the earth. What does it mean that he ascended? Well, he ascended through the heavens to go back. And so, yes, um, theologically, both are clearly there. Where you want to place the emphasis? I do agree. This is a good question, and so very valid. Okay, so how is Jesus like a earthly priest? He was tempted. He was tempted. How is he dislike an earthly priest? He didn't sin, all right? Huge difference, right? Huge difference, Christologically, all right? What's the difference between a man and God, all right? Jesus, the man, did not sin. Was he tempted like men? Yeah. But was he really tempted like men? Yes, right? That's very much the point. All right. That's very much, he, the argument of Hebrews doesn't work if he wasn't truly a man and didn't really be tempted like we are tempted. All right. That's actually quite the point of this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace and help to help in a time of need. Why draw in confidence? What's, what's that theme? What? I don't want you to answer yet. Read a little bit more. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. All right, why can the earthly priest deal gently with people? He's just like you. All right? He's experienced what you've experienced. All right? And if we look in terms of an example, all right, and this, this basic idea is here, and I want to bring this out. All right? If we look in terms of examples of people that we want to follow, all right, let's think in terms of something extremely earthly. All right? If you want to lose weight, who's your examples? All right? Who do you look to? Someone who's done it. You don't look to skinny person. Right? Because that skinny person might... You don't look to, to, to Samuel. All right? Samuel has the, uh, the, uh, the ability to burn... 
calories like a racehorse, all right? That, that guy's skinny, all right? It's not because he tries, all right? Though he, he exercises and stuff, all right? He's not your example on losing weight, all right? Also a large person, not your example on losing weight. What you need is someone who either has, through effort, successfully keeps it off or had it and lost it. Obvious, right? If you wanted to be rich, who's your example? Person who inherited a bunch of wealth? No. Person who's poor? Nope. Someone who's, someone who's made it. All right? Right? Makes sense. Same here. Why should we... Why, should, why would Jesus be kind to us? Why can we look at him as an example, and we can expect mercy from him. Well, because he's merciful. Yes, true. Why? This is part of the argument. He was tempted by sin too. So therefore, if you are tempted by sin, and you are, and you actually sin, and you do, all right, when you go to Jesus, he felt those temptations too. Now, it's different. He didn't sin, all right? He's like the skinny guy who's always skinny because he exercised. Right? That's the image there. He did it well, yet he understands because he was truly a man. And to be truly a man means to go through temptation. And to be truly a man, very important for our theme, means to experience weakness. If Jesus never experienced weakness, he was not a man. All right? Very important for our doctrine here. So, if we go back then to the book here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Right? That's verse 15 in chapter 4. But one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God the Father is not tempted by sin. Alright? God the Father is not tempted by sin. I don't even think there's a category for that. God the Son was. Alright? Who is your advocate? The Son. Alright? Not God the Father. The Son is your advocate to God the Father. Alright? Hmm? Not Mary. True point. True point. God the Son is your advocate to the Father. And He can be an effective advocate. Very much the theology of Hebrews because he was truly a man and he truly had your weaknesses and he truly had and felt your temptations and yet, unlike you, at least in the sin part, he overcame. Weaknesses? We'll get back to that. All right. Let us then have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now into chapter 5 once again. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. One thing I find interesting, and I'm leaving this as a general open question, is what does it mean for Jesus to offer gifts and sacrifices to God? One of those is super easy. Because it's clearly a centerpiece in the book of Hebrews, for example. All right? What does it mean for Jesus to offer sacrifices to God? Well, he sacrificed his life. Easy. What does it mean for Jesus as a priest to offer gift and sacrifices? Because you think about the Old Testament law, 
and what they were supposed to do. Not everything the priests did in the context of, of worship was blood sacrifice. There was lots of other types of activities that priests were supposed to do. They were supposed to offer gifts and sacrifices. All right? Open question. I, I don't yet, I don't have an answer to this. What does it mean, all right, when you draw a comparison between Jesus and earthly priests, where earthly priests were there to offer gifts and sacrifices? What does it mean for Jesus to offer gifts and sacrifices? Are the gifts just talking about the prayers that Christ himself makes and the requests that Christ himself makes to the Father? I don't know. Leave that open for you to, uh, leave that for, for you to think about. And when you have an answer, please tell me. All right, so... He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because, and this is talking about the human priest at this point. All right, now because the human priest is beset with weakness, all right, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So let's think about in, in detail what's the flow of thought here. You've got in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, you've got a discussion of the Son. It ties together the previous discussion with this discussion, right? Let us hold fast our confession, tying to previous, all right? Also tying to previous, things, various things about Jesus. But the focus here is on Jesus as high priest, all right? And the fact that Jesus here, all right, has experienced our temptations, but has not sinned. Now, at the beginning of chapter 5, it switches. Now we're going to talk about earthly priests. And you've got all the way through chapter 4, excuse me, verse 4 there. All of this is not about Jesus primarily. This is primarily about the human priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. Who are the high priests in Jewish thinking? Where does that come from? In the Old Testament, where do the high priests come from? What do you know about them? The tribe, of Levi. tribe of Levi. More specifically, because not everyone in the tribe of Levi was eligible to be high priest. Who was it? Aaron. Aaron. And then after Aaron? His sons. Right? So it was a priesthood, right? It was a priesthood that comes through a particular branch of the tribe of Levi. Was Jesus from the tribe of Levi? No. Well, that'll be important in a minute. Right now, it's not yet. All right. So, when he's talking about high priest here, he's specifically talking about Aaron and all of Aaron's sons after that fact. All right. And all of Aaron's sons were ultimately flawed people. All right. And they had weaknesses. And they had, in all of those weaknesses, to offer, offer sacrifices for themselves as well as um, for the people. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. We won't read all of this, though it's, it's, it's worth going back and um, reviewing. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally. Okay? Anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments and about things not to be done, and does any one of them, 
If it, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer the sin that he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for sin offering. And it actually goes through, uh, oh, verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and this thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt when the sin has been committed, becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull. So you've got there in Leviticus, you, you have this... This thing in the law, when the author of Hebrews is talking about this, he's, he's talking about Leviticus and things like it. All right, And so, um, you've got the sin of the people. But you also have spelled out there, what happens when it's the priest who sins? Well, they have to offer a, a, a sacrifice for themselves. And for the people there. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3. For his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, this is not the first time he said this. All right, and this is this will come up more, because one thing, for whatever reason, the author is going to focus on. All right, is the fact that Jesus did not choose himself to be high priest. Jesus was chosen by God to be high priest. That's very much an emphasis, and that will come out in the Psalm that we're about to read a selection from. All right. And so, how is Jesus like earthly priests? He is beset with weakness. Not in the same sense that they're beset with weakness. He experiences temptation, but does not fail. So he is like them, but also dislike them. Okay? So also, all right, verse 5, because we've talked about Jesus, then we talk about earthly priests. Now we're talking about Jesus. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And also, in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, uh, turn to Psalm chapter 2. And then we'll turn to Psalm 110. Psalm chapter 2, the context, is basically a question. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Against whom? Against David. Against the Lord. And against his anointed. Verse 7. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what the author of Hebrews quotes. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So you've gotten Psalm 2. You've got God's election of the king. Right? God looks down at the king and says, you are my son. All right? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 110. We've already talked about this psalm. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. And so priests do not choose themselves. Jesus did not choose that he would be a priest. God the Father chose that he would be a priest. God said, you are king. God said, you are a priest, not a priest on the order of Melchizedek. Excuse me, on Aaron, a priest on the order of Melchizedek, which will come up a lot more in the next few chapters. Back to Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, this is Hebrews 5.7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so there's a few things going on here, and then we will have to wrap it up. All right, so notice here the the time frame we're specifically talking about it. In the days of his flesh. So this is very clearly a talk discussion of during his incarnation. Right? In the days of his flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, just like a priest would do. Right? Jesus often prayed for his disciples. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. My first thought on this, all right, my first thought on that one is talk about able to save him from death. My first thought was Garden of Gethsemane. All right? I think that's the wrong thought, right? Though that, I mean, obviously that's true and applies there. I think really this is more, all right? Because this is, because this is all about Jesus being made perfect, all right? Jesus being made the perfect high priest. What was the thing that made Jesus? And this gets to the context. Why is this here? What was the thing that made Jesus the perfect high priest? It wasn't his life. It was the fact that his life was faithful unto death. Remember what Jesus did right before he died. What did Jesus do? He prayed. All right? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All right? He prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've talked about that psalm. And that psalm ends not with being forsaken. That psalm ends with victory. All right? That psalm's not about, I am forsaken by God. The psalm is a psalm of, of faith by the king of, why am I forsaken? I'm not forsaken. God is with me. And this is how, ultimately, it ties in. Because what was the last section about? The last section was about, what do you need to do? You need to be obedient to the point of death. Why is this here? Because Jesus is your perfect example. At what point, to what point was Jesus perfect? Unto death. Alright? He's your example, right? He's your example in that he sinned. 
no, oh, excuse me, that he was tempted by sin, but, but didn't sin, right? He was your example in that. He was your example in that he was beset by weakness. What does it mean that he was perfected, all right? That doesn't, that doesn't refer to sin, all right? He, did, he wasn't a sinner and then became perfect. That's quite the opposite of the point here. The point is that Jesus was tempted but never sinned. How could Jesus become perfect? Because, all right, because he can't be your priest, until he finishes the job. He can't be your priest until he does the sacrifice. Right? The whole point of a priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for people in relation to God. During his life, all right, we don't see in the gospel, we don't see Jesus giving sacrifices on behalf of his people, on behalf of his disciples. That's not how it worked, right? Jesus was perfected, all right? And uh, in some ways, that's not a good word for it. You could say, all right, there's not a good word, which is why nobody uses a good one here. You could also say complete, okay? That's what it means. He didn't go from sinful to not sinful. He didn't go from terrible to perfect, he went from a man to a man who finished the course. That's what it means by complete here. All right. Now, he's not trying, per se, to build out a doctrine of the Trinity here. All right? But he is very much trying to tell you about the nature of Jesus as a human. All right? How did Jesus... Did Jesus have to learn obedience? It says that here. All right? It says that here. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It is the nature of God, apparently, to know everything. It is the nature of man to be ignorant of a great deal of things. All right? It is the nature of man to get better. And I don't mean in the imperfection sin side of things, because that's always where we go when we see perfect. Right? It is the nature of a man, all right, or a woman, to start as an infant completely useless and completely, completely helpless. It is man's nature to start off as... All right. Jesus, when he became a man, started off the same way. All right. He didn't become a baby and just start walking around. No. Jesus became a man. All right. He had to grow and become perfect and live throughout his entire life so that at the end, all right, he could do what he needed to do and then complete himself as a man. All right. By obedience, and then finish the race. And for him, finishing the race meant finally offering that sacrifice. Okay, which which we will come back to again in Hebrews because it plays a very important part in the future. Yes, Bill. About learning obedience, yeah, it it, it can make you think, what what he had to learn it. But you know, there's a point in his life where he he wasn't obeying any commands yet. 
And then as he matures into a man, God is giving him things to do, and now he's going to complete that by being obedient to those commands. Mm-hmm. He's learning them, not as in he used to be disobedient, but right. he used to not have commands to obey. Absolutely. And also, do you, do you, are you ever anxious? I was anxious last night. Right. Are, are, are you anxious? I get anxious sometimes. All right. When did you learn that you were not to be anxious? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, it was years ago. All right. I'm, even, I'm, I did not learn last night. I should not be anxious. That thought did not come into my head. I should not be anxious for the first time. It came into my head. It did. But not for the first time. I knew that already. I had to practice learning not to be anxious last night. All right? I'd think about it and go, I'm anxious about this. I need to not be anxious. I'm going to pray about this. All right? That's part of learning obedience, is it not? Now, Jesus, he didn't fail in any of it. But it is part of being human. That when you get a command and you know a command in your brain, all right, that you improve over time. That's what it means to learn obedience. All right? You will fail, but that's okay, because you're learning obedience. And you should learn obedience until when? Until you're dead. Right? Until you're dead. You should learn obedience until you're dead. You know what Jesus did? That's the point here. He learned obedience. Without failing, but he learned obedience until he died. And is thus our example of making it to the end. All right? That's how it fits in here. That's why you've got, that's why this is here. That's why right before it, it talks about you've got to do it. And that's why it's right after it. We're going to see about the dire things that happens if you don't. All right? It says very bad things. All right? Very, very dire things. That's why this is here. Now, various of these things will be picked up again because he is going to have a lot of discussion about Christ as a new Melchizedek all right, in the next few chapters, as we shall see. But that was ultimately why this is here. And if you just treat this as a piece of systematic theology, you won't see it. You've got to see the rhetorical flow of the piece. Yes, Chip? Uh, no, there's a Melchizedek missing quite a bit here. I think he's only missed once in the Old Testament. The rather mysterious high priest... In what ways did his order differ from the ironic order? That is a good question. And we will talk about that. Yes. Yes. It is different. Is there any way to find out more about The best place to look is the Old Testament and the New. Alright? It shows up in Genesis and it also shows up in the Psalms. Right? That that quote we just read was a quote of the Psalms mentioning Melchizedek. It's a kingly priesthood, all right? Why is it a kingly priesthood? Because Melchizedek was a king. But that's getting ahead to, like, chapter 7, chapter 8 of Hebrews. So we'll come back to that. It, yeah, It's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. I think there's also a, Jesus is called the second Adam. Mm-hmm. And the, the first Adam is the Son of God. He's commanded, and then very early he fails, not obeying to death. But the second Adam does. 
He succeeds and never fails. Amen. Well, and even the types of obedience, like when he's a child, he's obeying his father and his mother. You know, when he's um, growing up and he's working unto the Lord and not as unto men merely. But then he's learning that, okay, they're going to physically hurt my body because of your instructions to me. But I'm going to do that too. Like, you know, he's learning obedience in different types of obedience, maybe. Yeah. Like, suffering obedience. Yeah. In the book of Hebrews, you have to appreciate Jesus as a man. All right, We have a tendency to theologically exalt Jesus to the place where he's not a man. Because we want to focus on the fact that he is truly God, which we believe. We can't do that. All right? It is heresy. Just as much just as it is heresy to say that Jesus is not God, it is heresy to say that Jesus is not man. All right? Both are orthodox doctrine. Both are creedal. We followed it for a good... 1,700 years. We stick with it. It's clearly here in Hebrews. All right, let's be dismissed so we can have a few minutes to, uh, to fellowship and break before we worship together. So let's do that. Um, Elliot, will you please pray for us?